Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. As we enter a new calendar year, let's take a look back at news highlights from 2022. The pandemic lingered into a third year, tribes, businesses, and public spaces lifted most remaining public health restrictions, families coped with rising prices, the U.S. Supreme Court signaled a new direction on tribal sovereignty, and a major storm destroyed homes and infrastructure in western Alaska. But there was plenty of good news, too, from the arts to outer space. We'll talk with journalists about the highs and lows of 2022 right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Rosebud tribal members continue to dig out from winter storms. Some are hauling wood to keep community members warm, while truck drivers deliver propane to residents. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. Wayne and Alex Romero Frederick load firewood onto a trailer just north of T. The Lakotas from Oak Creek traveled to Sioux Falls to gather wood and other provisions to bring back to their neighbors. Alex says they've dealt with extreme wind, snow, ice, and cold the last two weeks. A lot of the firewood that was stored, you know, we can't get to. Um, a lot of the creeks are, are snowed in so deep that we can't get down to them to cut wood. So um, a lot of people ran out of wood. Wayne sits on the Rosebud Tribal Council. He says recovery efforts could take a while especially as the region anticipates the two coldest months of the year. The broken pipes, the houses that have, have been uh, lost, that's just the material things, you know, and, we're, and we've lost some people. Both Rosebud and neighboring Pine Ridge were slammed with back-to-back winter storms this December. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem activated the National Guard last week. Efforts to haul firewood from the Black Hills to Pine Ridge and Rosebud, as well as help with snow removal, are ongoing. Travis Eagledeer is the general manager for Sichangu Propane. He says the company is focusing on larger communities with the most homes in need of propane. Eagle Deer says there's no shortage of propane, rather an issue of getting trucks through narrow paths with snow drifts on either side of the road. We're slowly working, removing snow, just so we could get access to certain homes. And there'll probably still be a bit before we could get to some of the homes around the area. Eagle Deer asks residents to keep paths to their propane tanks clear and to widen their driveways if possible. I'm Lee Strubinger. A new committee led by the Interior Department recently began work to identify place names, consider derogatory, and to recommend potential replacements. KNBA's Hannah Bissett reports. On December 7th and 8th, the Advisory Committee of Reconciliation and Place Names met for the first time. Secretary Deb Holland hopes the committee will accelerate a critical process in derogatory place names. One year ago, I issued the secretary's order that created this advisory committee to help us ensure that America's public lands are welcoming to everyone. In this meeting, they discussed what the term derogatory means, creating subcommittees, and detailing future plans. On the topic of the term derogatory, Federico Mosqueda said the following. We as a committee, we need to challenge this definition. What we need to do is we just need to take the names that we consider derogatory to us, challenge that name using their definition. He says this is important to push the point home by using experience and emotion to express the inappropriate nature of these place names and their hurtful histories. The proposed subcommittees were the following, the federal land unit names, the geographic feature names, and the processes and principles subcommittee. At least in the federal land unit name subcommittee, uh, there is um, a list almost ready to go to provide that subcommittee. That was Joshua Winchell, staff director of the National Park System Advisory Board. Winchell says it's important to have these subcommittees because they deal with different methods. We renamed the state park, Sumeg, Yurok name. Uh, last year, and that even after the Park and Recreation Commission acted on that, it had to go to the um, federal government. The general public will be able to provide input. I'm Hannah Bissett. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. What if someone said you owe money to the IRS and have to pay with a gift card? Or they ask for a gift card so you can avoid going to jail? Stop. It's a scam. Gift cards are for gifts, not payments. Report scams at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. A historical master trauma class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 24, 2023 at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Let's recap some of the biggest news stories for 2022. For starters, it was the third year of the pandemic, which continues to take a human and economic toll on Native Americans. The U.S. Supreme Court made a significant ruling on tribal jurisdiction in Oklahoma, and a federal judge determined the Osage Reservation should be dissolved. Elsewhere, tribes are coping with looming extinction of salmon, and storms took their toll on Alaskan homes and other structures. But there were also positive highlights from the year. Native composer Raven Chacon won a Pulitzer Prize. Astronaut Nicole Mann blasted off into space. And several tribes increased their broadband connectivity. Today we're speaking with Native journalists and more about a few of the major news stories of 2022 and getting some updates. We always want to hear from our listeners as well. What will you remember most about 2022? Weather, Supreme Court rulings, entertainment? We want to hear, so join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest is speaking with us in Albuquerque, Sean Griswold. He's a senior reporter for Source New Mexico. He is Laguna, Hamas, and Zuni. Sean, welcome back to the show. Hey, Kashi. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great, Sean. Thank you so much. And we have so much to talk about today, but one of the biggest stories of the year in New Mexico was that devastating wildfire that scorched the northern part of the state, including uh, your people there in Jemez Pueblo. How are the people now and the lands there? Are they holding up okay? Well, the Hermit's Peak Half Canyon fire uh, was the largest recorded history in New Mexico ever started um, early spring major major winds um another one of those historical weather days and in fact the fire was started by the u.s federal government uh two prescribed burns connected the hermit's peak fire and the calf canyon fire um now this fire mostly was predominantly in northern new mexico range uh communities of moda as well as las vegas new mexico there was no actual burns uh scar that affected any of the pueblo or tribal areas um this is all state county federal mixed lands um, now, because the federal uh, government has taken responsibility, the federal government is now in the process of um, paying those losses and has since um, awarded or is getting ready to prepare nearly $5 billion um, in recovery aid to um, help people recover from this fire. Now, is that part of the relief funding announcement that Nancy Pelosi made there in Albuquerque at the Pueblo Cultural Center? So some of that does include uh, money from that area. There's also an additional um, uh, $1.4 billion that was included in the uh, omnibus spending package that Congress passed uh, late last week. Um, and so, that, so that's additional funding that is coming to New Mexico. But part of that spending package that's also going to be affecting New Mexico, predominantly the tribes here in the state, um, is a $90 million appropriation that's going to go to the Dahajali School. Um, this is in, on the Navajo Nation just uh, west of Albuquerque. $90 million to refurbish, reconstruct, and rebuild a BIE school in Tahajali, New Mexico. On top of that, Congress also approved um, what's called the Land Grant Permanent Fund Enhancement Act. Ultimately, about $200 million each year will now go to public education and early childhood education programs in New Mexico. And this includes tribal, uh, tribal school districts as well as developing curriculum uh, to reform New Mexico's public education system. And this is all part of that spending package that Congress passed last year, or sorry, last week. Okay, so Sean, billions of dollars going towards uh, these relief efforts for the fire, which sadly was the result of a, a controlled burn that got out of hand, which 
we hear about, unfortunately, uh, quite often, uh, sadly. And then additional monies for, uh, for educational needs. How far does all this money go? Uh, I mean, is this a, a significant amount that's going to make a, a real impact uh, for New Mexico's tribal communities? Okay, when we look at the fire recovery effort stuff, um, the impact for tribal communities, that's going to probably be um, more on the downstream end. Um, this is primarily money that's going to go directly to communities and counties within New Mexico, um, non-tribal counties, non-tribal okay. communities. Those are going to be the ones who are going to be receiving the bulk of that $5 billion in relief aid. Now, when it comes to federal land management, what's coming out of this fire recovery is how the federal government is going to manage lands in the future when it comes to prescribed burns, when it comes to watershed recovery efforts, because one thing that came out of this fire is a destruction of, of, of irrigation channels, watersheds that, that, that does have a downstream effect on farmers and irrigation systems for tribal lands. And if there's going to be a reform over the whole full, full federal process, what we're seeing out of this is, is ultimately we haven't seen it yet. So that's going to be something we'll be tracking um, over the next year into 2023 and beyond. Okay. All right. Well, Sean, another big story uh, coming out of New Mexico. You were actually part of this story. You went to uh, a big Republican campaign rally uh, during the election cycle. It included Ron DeSantis, U.S. Representative Yvette Harrell, and the Republican candidate for governor, Mark Ranchetti. And, and you were barred from entering the rally. What, what happened? Uh, yeah, this was uh, involved with uh, my election coverage uh, for this election cycle. I was there to do my job uh, to cover the New Mexico governor candidate, Mark Ronchetti. I get to the front of the line, um, and I was taking in a, pr uh, a public pass. Um, the day before, I had already been denied a press credential. Um, the campaigns wanted to be combative um, and also ultimately tried to discredit my news, uh, my news outlet. Um, they wouldn't let me in. They had my picture, banned me from being, being inside. What was their um, what was their justification? So their justification with that is very unclear, and this is probably one of the best outcomes out of this entire situation, is that it, it brought in a lot of broad support for journalism community in New Mexico, um, that also brought attention for people outside of the state who were here to support just press freedom and press access. Um, but their justification is that they were citing my publication in a slanderous way, calling us a political entity and trying to just discredit us and our credibility when there was no basis for that at all. Um, and in fact, as we saw from the rest of it, ultimately proved in our favor as we had support from everybody, I would say, out after this whole event did occur, just broad support for press freedom and press access in New Mexico. Were you the only journalist who was prohibited from entering the rally? Yes. To my knowledge, I was the only one that was prohibited from entering. Uh, you know my outlet as well, yes. What really surprises me, <laughs> freaks me out about that story, Sean, is, I mean, I, I know you, I know what you look like. I'd recognize you, bro, like if you were walking down the street or something. But, um, but the fact that they actually had your picture, I mean, it sounds like they were prepared. They, were, they, they knew or had a good idea that you were going to cover that event, and uh, they, had, they had their ducks in a row. Yeah, you know, their, their private security manages these events, but also you have state police, you have county sheriffs, you have the full law enforcement scope of security there. You also have a person, Ron DeSantis, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's a potential presidential nominee, and so he has also his own security measures and everything. Um, it's very broad. And, you know, this is a, this isn't happened in Carlsbad, New Mexico. This is five hours away from, from where I live. Um, it's a community that, that I have some familiarity with, but it's not my home. And so to go to a place like that um, and and having had experience covering Republican events, the Trump years, I learned a lot in covering those type of events and in those types of communities. I can be comfortable. I can fit in. Um, mm -hmm. I can, I've also been kicked out of places before like this. But this was the very first instance where I walk up, a security guard has my picture on his phone and picks me out of the crowd, denies me entry. And then I'm basically told because, because they identified me as somebody that was an opposing viewpoint to them. As a news source, they were apparently afraid of. And ultimately, again, the result of that just led to more people affirming that press is important and essential right. in the Mexico. Right. Yeah. As a journalist, do you have any recourse when, when something like this happens? You're barred from an event? Oh, I mean, so, so here's what I did is, you know, I took it after I got, after I basically, you know, got told to leave. 
you know, guns pointed at my, pointed towards me and everything. They drew um, weapons on you. Well, the sheriff's office were holding their weapons, and then they came, you know, within inches of me. They're holding like their big, you know, their their weapons at that point. Like barrels. I'm sorry. Were, were barrels pointed in your direction? Not in my direction. No, they okay. just like came really close with it right there. Okay. Yeah. So, so I don't want to mis- misspeak on that one. But, okay. You know that that's when when they were standing five feet away at the beginning of the interaction, and then by the end of it, they're you know inches away from me. That is showing that they're telling telling me to leave. You know. So, right. so I go to the side of the building. I I start bumming cigarettes from people who are attending the event. People wearing you know three percenter T-shirts. These are white supremacist logos. Uh, people wearing Confederate flags. People wearing Trump shirts. People that I was actually there to talk to. You know, part of the assignment was also to try to get a viewpoint from uh, New Mexico voters who live in southern New Mexico. That's a constituency, as we saw. That was people who, you know, with with more, almost 40 percent of a vote, supported a Republican candidate who had um, in, uh, running for governor who had people supporting him who still denied the election results from 2020. Okay. So we're All trying right. to get an understanding of who these people are. Um, right. Bumming right. a cigarette. I'll wrap up quickly. I noticed in a trash can two blank signs, like cardboard sheet signs. Um, I go grab my Sharpie in my backpack. I write down, hello, my name is Sean. I'm a journalist. And I write two questions. Why are you here? And what can the news do better? So then I stand at the corner outside, kind of in caddy corner to where the entrance was, where all the security guards and um, law enforcement were at. But, you know, in in, in a way that is like non-hostile, non-confrontational, I'm waving at people, holding my sign, and... People were interacting with me. I had a lot of people, you know, walk by, read it, and walk away, think about it, smirk, maybe make some reaction. I had some people answer the questions but didn't want to go um, on record. So, you know, they're just conversations. And then I did have some people that went on the record with me. I did my job. I published a story about the event. Despite this whole thing that ultimately was about me, I flipped it around and still did my job. And... That's that again. That, that it always comes back to the fact that, like at this point, we were affirmed that journalism mattered. Right, right, Sean. We sure do appreciate uh, all you do and all these other Native journalists who are on our show today and elsewhere. Uh, just sadly, uh, tough day for Sean Griswold there at that campaign rally, but he did his job nonetheless. So props to you, Sean Griswold. We'll be right back after a short break. How well were you paying attention to news, arts, and entertainment this year? What awards has Reservation Dogs won? What did the head of the Cherokee Nation say about his state's governor? Test your knowledge with our 2022 Trivia Show. We're marking the end of the year with some of our favorite guests and taking calls on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. 2022 has been a year filled with both achievements and setbacks for Native Americans. What events do you remember from the year? Midterm elections, environmental issues, arts and entertainment? Call us at 1-800-996-2848 to share your comments on the air. 1-800-996-2848. We've got a caller on the line right now, Al, listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Al, hello. You're on Native America Calling. Oh, hi. Uh, yes, uh, that was a pretty interesting story from that reporter. And if I could add, uh, that's why Ron Keddy's not governor of New Mexico. But uh, my, my main comment, though, was uh, I'd like to give a shout-out to KOAT and their news team because they have been sharing reports about the MMIW issue here in New Mexico. I'm I'm Navajo. I'm from Shiprock, New Mexico, 
And so it's good that I hear this on the news because it's not only creating awareness here in New Mexico, but eventually it will become national news on ABC News, I'm hoping. So that way the whole America knows about what's going on instead of just in certain spots like New Mexico. So, But that's it. I just want to give a shout-out to KOET and their reporting team. All righty, Al. Thank you. Appreciate that call very much. And, and you mentioned MMIW. And let's go ahead and have Sean Griswold respond. Sean, I know that Congress, uh, another big news issue here from 2022 was the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, VAWA, and it ties in with MMIW. And I want to ask you, is this something that resonates for New Mexico's sizable native population? Oh, this is a significant thing for not only the, the population who works directly, whether in the tribal criminal uh, justice systems, uh, law enforcement, but also those who support and aftercare services, social care services, housing, um, mental health services. This is something that just is, is was a priority to make sure that Congress passed and continues to be a priority to provide further legislation for um, tribal governments and these interests to have support from the federal government. And, and in New Mexico, you're going to see more resources directed to these, to these systems, but also for, for, for um, aftercare support networks. Um, that are able to uh, reach and access funding at a better rate um, to reach more people. And um, that's just New Mexico. So I'm always curious to understand and learn what that means for uh, other tribal nations um, in the country. All righty. Well, we're speaking with Sean Griswold, senior reporter for Source New Mexico. And let's head to Oklahoma where we have our next guest, Allison Herrera. She is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at KOSU. She is Salinan. Allison, welcome back to NAC. Hi, thanks for having me today. Allison, I, I know uh, a big story that you've been covering this year. In fact, I believe you're at an event today. Uh, earlier this year, Department of Interior, they uh, announced the, the BIA Residential School Listening Tour. And uh, there's an event going on right now? No. Um, so there, um, there was... The uh, listening, the first stop in uh, Secretary Holland's Road to Healing tour was in Anadarko, Oklahoma in July. And this was a few months after the Department of Interior released uh, part, the first part of their report on federal Indian boarding schools. And that, that was a really big story. I felt like that didn't get a lot of uh, of coverage, but it, you know, it was a really monumental report to see on government letterhead um, the department admitting for the first time the policies that that the Department of Interior enacted directly targeted Native American, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian um, children to um, force a cultural uh, the forced cultural assimilation and. Um, Indian land dispossession, and that 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 was the stated goals of these schools, and that these schools were funded by um, by money that was supposed to be held in trust for for Native people. So, uh, part of that part of what came out of that report was Holland um, going around the country. I believe she went to Michigan. Uh, I think that she also went to Alaska. And then her first stop was in Oklahoma because Oklahoma had one of the high, has the highest number of those schools. And it was a really remarkable event. You know, here we were in this, um, in this school gymnasium uh, that had once been um, a had so a legacy of abuse and um, just you know terrible. These also all of these elders had gathered into the, in this gym and talked about their experience. And Secretary Holland and Assistant Secretary Newland were there listening, as well as some of us from the press. And it was a pretty incredible, an incredible moment. And I'm curious to see what um, Secretary Holland, what the second part of the report is going to be, um, and then. Right now, I'm working on a story with um, NPR's education team where we actually got to go to Riverside Indian School um, just a couple of months ago in October and talk with the current superintendent and ask her some questions about, you know, how obviously how the school has changed and, how, you know, and what students learn about the Indian boarding school experience and, and why, um, you know, why some parents choose to send their send their students to Indian boarding schools um, that still exist, given the history. Mm -hmm. Well, really groundbreaking. And 
Allison, any ideas at all or, or hints of, of what's going to happen now that the listening sessions have taken place? You mentioned this report that's uh, going to be put forward, hopefully within the relatively near future. Yeah, so there's a second part of the report, and I'm, uh, you know, I've asked about what could be included in that report. Um, my colleague Sequoia Carrillo um, from NPR's education team, we actually interviewed Holland about, you know, what um, what could be the next step after these after this listening tour, and um, we asked about reparations for native vict- for victims of boarding schools, and she was a little bit, you know. Um, really didn't have a definite answer about that. Um, you know, there's been, I think there's been some discussions about, you know, what, um, you know, what could be done to um, make the situation right. And I think a lot of elders that I've spoke with have said, you know, uh, this is just a start um, and that reparations would be welcome. Um, also mental health, better mental health support for um, victims of boarding, those who survived boarding schools. So I think uh, you know, if I were to, you know, put on my, put my crystal ball in front of me and look at, I would say that a second part of the report would be some recommendations to those ends. Okay. Well, Allison, Oklahoma, ground zero for a lot of news this year that affects tribes, not only in that state, but elsewhere. What are some other really big stories that you followed in 2022? Well, the biggest one was the um, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta decision that came out um, at the end of June. Um, and so this was, uh, you know, I felt like I was reliving July of 2020, you know, so not my first rodeo sitting at a computer at 8.30 a.m., like refreshing the SCOTUS page. But um, so this decision um, was uh, built off of uh, Oklahoma, uh, you know, obviously was very disappointed in the McGoat decision in 2020, which ruled that the Muscogee Nation's reservation was was ruled never disestablished, and then consequently, five other tribal nations in the in, in the state also had their reservations um, re-recon, you know, re-recognized. And so, you know, more than forty percent of eastern Oklahoma being reservation territory is huge, very big deal, and a huge win for tribal sovereignty. Um, and so, after that, you know, Oklahoma began. I think they filed more than forty petitions um, asking the court one to overrule the the McGirt decision and two to limit the scope of that decision. And that's when in January of 2020, um, the the Supreme Court said, okay, we're going to consider this second question, which is which was the Castro Huerta case. So um, what can Oklahoma have concurrent jurisdiction when it comes to prosecuting non-Native people when they commit felony crimes on a reservation? And the Supreme Court uh, ruled in a five to four decision that yes, they, that Oklahoma does have concurrent jurisdiction. And that decision not only applied to tribes in Oklahoma, but all over the country. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, states uh, that uh, have a public law 280, have public law 280, where, you know, um, tribes have to, that the state does have concurrent jurisdiction, um, you know, from that 1954, um, that 1954 law. And then you have states that have never had um, the state have concurrent jurisdiction. So, um, you know, I did a story where I call, where I said that this was an unfunded mandate. You're basically asking state resources to police uh, non-native victim, not non-native, um, you know, people who commit crimes on a, on reservation land when that normally would be left up to the federal government or the tribes. And, I, and I'd like to add, you know, with VAWA um, being reauthorized, uh, you know, that the, this, the, the Castro Huerta decision does have um, a, some significant effects on how the Violence Against Women Act will be um, enforced on reservation land. I, I did a ride-along with a Muscogee Nation officer uh, in the latter part of the summer and he said that most of the calls that they get are domestic violence related and i think tribes feel like you know we are in the best position to um, prosecute people who commit crimes against our people within our own court. And so I think I'm going to be watching this decision. I do know that um, late in the latter part of the summer, there was an effort to introduce some legislation um, in the wake of the decision um, by different tribes all over the country, not just in Oklahoma, but it's called the Strengthening um, of, of Criminal Justice and Indian Act. And it's asking the court to basically limit some of the effects of the Castro where to decision. So I'm going to be looking at that um, over the course of the next year. 
So, okay. Um, really Allison, big decision there. Absolutely. Yeah. And let's also talk about Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who is, of course, uh, a Cherokee Nation citizen. And uh, that was a huge story during the midterm. You had several tribes working very hard to unseat him as the governor, but yet he easily won re-election. And I'm curious to know, how have relations between him and, and the tribes, have they improved at all since the election? Or how do you see things going forward? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that myself, Sean. I, I think um, going forward, I, you know, I do, I, I published this story just a couple of weeks ago about the gaming compact issue, which uh, in 2020, in the wake of, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the tribes have a gaming, a model gaming compact within the state of Oklahoma that allows them to have certain types of class three and class one and two, you know, um, class three gaming. And so, the you know the governor had said you know these contacts don't renew at the beginning of 2020 the tribes said that they did they ultimately won a lawsuit but before that ruling came down um Oklahoma's governor you know Kevin Stitt had signed four gaming gaming compacts outside of the model gaming compact which were deemed illegal by the Oklahoma um, state supreme court and then in I found out in the fall of 2020 that he had hired additional counsel to um, to to make to dismiss this lawsuit that the, these four tribes had brought against him mm-hmm. and the four other tribes. And so, you know, uh, I'm curious to see what, what's going to happen, because there was a ruling um, by a D.C. federal court judge that basically said, you know, you know, yes, you know, no, United States government, you can't have this case dismissed because. Um, you know, the Department of the, you know, you had a duty to make sure that these compacts were valid. You you knew that they weren't valid because you had this opinion. And and so um, we're, I'll see how that's going to affect, you know, um, tribal state relations, um, you know, in the wake of the election. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I'm just going to, it's kind of a wait and see. And um, But I do think that the gaming compacts are going to come up again. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be watching very closely in the months to come there in Oklahoma. And uh, Governor Kevin Stitt, reelected in 2022. Let's now move north. Uh, joining us from Treaty 6 territory in Alberta, Canada, is Brandy Morin. She's a Cree, Iroquois, and French journalist. Brandy, welcome back to Native America Calling as well. Tom, say nice to be back. Thank you. Brandy, lots of interesting news impacting Canada's Indigenous people this year. Can we start with the papal visit and apology? Absolutely. So I traveled to Rome uh, in late March and early April after uh, Indigenous uh, delegates, survivors, were invited by Pope Francis uh, for a series of meetings, these were historical meetings after survivors and advocates had called for an apology and, you know, repatriations for decades. And these meetings happened uh, over a week, and at the end of the week, uh, the Pope apologized um, at the Vatican, and it was very surprising <clears throat> for everybody that attended, although the delegates had asked the Pope to come to Canada, to Indigenous territories where these crimes against children happened, uh, to make that apology. They weren't expecting him uh, to make it in Rome. So they did state that the apology would not be validated until the Pope came to Canada. So a few months later, uh, in July, uh, the Pope did uh, come to Canada and uh, embarked on this uh, so-called uh, repentant uh, apolo- apology tour, you know, across um, Alberta, Quebec, and Iqaluit. And um, it was, uh, I, I did uh, cover that across the country as well. And, um, you know, it was um, a lot of, I, I witnessed a lot of different uh, mixed reactions and emotions. There was our, there was there was survivors as well that came up even from south of the medicine line, uh, you know, in the U.S. Because we know that these uh, boarding schools existed, uh, you know, both in Canada and the U.S. Folks, we are doing a recap of 2022 news and events. We've talked to a reporter in New Mexico. We've talked to a reporter in Oklahoma, and right now we're chatting with Brandy Morin, who's up in Alberta, Canada. If you have a question or a comment for today's show, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848.
This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're reviewing highlights from 2022, and you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Brandy Morin is on the line in Alberta, Canada. And Brandy, before break, you gave us an update on Pope Francis's visit to to Canada uh, this summer and the subsequent apology. And I, I know another really, really powerful story you covered this year involved a serial killer in Winnipeg who preyed on Indigenous women. Uh, what's the update there? Yeah, so um, we learned uh, in this early December that the serial killer, which I will not, you know, give the privilege of acknowledging his name, uh, wiped out four uh, Indigenous women in Winnipeg over a period of three months between um, March and and May of 2022. And police uh, announced that they had, you know, confirmed uh, these murders and that they believed that their remains um, were in uh, two different landfills uh, in Winnipeg. And the police informed the families of these victims that they were not going to search the landfills for the remainder of their remains. And it, uh, you know, the families, specifically two daughters of one of the victims named Morgan Harris, um, hopped in a vehicle from Winnipeg uh, with some of their family members and drove to Ottawa and, uh, you know, went right to the federal government to uh, decry and, and demand that the resources be provided for their, uh, you know, their family members to be found. And um, there was protests and rallies held across the country. And this really... Um, you know, I guess, I don't want to say maybe solidified, but we have a crisis, we have an epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls happening. It was declared a, a genocide by the National Inquiry that we had, um, uh, and which calls for justice were released three years ago and little has been done. So, you know, this this exasperated that crisis with, you know, four women being taken out and targeted, you know, within this short time frame. And so um, the federal government did respond um, um, and, you know, told specifically Morgan's daughters, Cambria and Kara Harris, that they would uh, step in and help provide the resources. Their daughters returned back to Winnipeg and they, uh, again, along with um, supporters and advocates, uh, went to shut down the landfills and they, um, you know, they, they set up camps and blockades, which are still happening right now. And uh, in response, the, the city of Winnipeg with the Winnipeg police, um, you know, decided to have them shut down and to create a committee, you know, uh, to decide how to move forward with, um, you know, searching these landfills, which, you know, they, they said it would be, um, you know, nearly impossible to search but again these these victims and these families you know are demanding that they do whatever it takes because it does symbolize um you know our our women and girls being uh, disregarded and you know um and and so it it was a, a big national and international story and i'm still following it serial killer i mean that's just so horrific shocking and in recent years, Brandy, I've noticed that we don't hear about serial killers as much. And, and so much of the attention now is focused on like the mass shootings, which so much media attention on those events. And yet these serial killings, they're still happening uh, there in Canada and also in parts of the U.S. They just don't get as much exposure. So what do you want people to really understand about this? I mean, aside from the tragedy and the horrific nature of these crimes, um, is this also a teachable moment for for folks uh, there in Canada? 
I mean, yeah, I think across the board for people to really understand how much of a crisis that this is. I mean, we have this 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 man who took it upon himself to, you know, target specifically Indigenous women that he had this right to take their lives. Um, you know, there are a number of different reasons as to why our women are targeted and, you know, in, in vulnerable situations. But, you know, hopefully this is eye-opening, uh, you know, for, you know, society to, you know, pay attention and, and for, you know, the authorities and, you know, um, everybody that are called upon all levels of governments and, um, you know, different sectors of society to implement these, you know, calls for justice so that uh, our women and girls can be protected. Well, Brandy, let's let's move on to some some happier news from the year. There was a historic twenty billion dollar First Nations child welfare settlement. Uh, tell us how is it helping Indigenous people there in Canada, and what promise is there that the money can provide? Yeah, so this uh, you know a Supreme Court of Canada ruling was you know a result of a Canadian human rights tribunal decision that was oh gosh about 16 years in the making um it was filed by the first nations um uh, family and caring society along with the assembly of first nations um and the tribunal you know they uh, they ruled that the Canadian government did discriminate, uh, you know, against First Nations children along with their families in failing to provide the, the adequate financial resources, um, you know, in the child welfare system and removing First Nations children from their homes. Um, and they finally came, you know, to this settlement this, that was agreed upon uh, in also in early December, a $40 billion settlement, $20 billion specifically for children removed or discriminated against in the system along with their families, and then an additional $20 billion to reform the child welfare system. Um, there is, you know, still some controversy, uh, you know, around it. Um, there are concerns that not all of the children and families will be fully compensated, which a uh, $40,000 per per family per per child affected was stipulated, um, but they you know managed to uh, agree the Assembly of First Nations and the First Nations uh, Family and Caring Society, along with the government, um, you know, on this historic settlement. And you know um, now what remains to unfold is deciding you know how um, the. 20 billion uh, to reform the system and the 20 billion will be adequate or allocated to the families. But yeah, it is good news and almost 20 years in the making. Brandy, we really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing some of these news events from 2022. Uh, Hope you're still wearing that cook scarf. (laughs) Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. You bet. Happy New Year to you as well, Brandy. We've got one more guest on the line, and uh, she's a good one. Rhonda McBride is joining us from Anchorage, Alaska. She is a journalist and news director for KNBA. Rhonda, welcome back to NAC. Hi, Sean. It's great to see you again. We enjoyed your visit to Alaska earlier this year. Well, I sure enjoyed my visit, and I sure appreciated you giving me a ride uh, into town that one afternoon as well. And, and speaking of Alaska and, and the weather, geez, just so many weather events made national news all over Alaska this year, including, of course, there in Anchorage where you are. Uh, are folks bracing for another blizzard to close out the year? Who knows? You know, right now we've had some warm weather, which is potentially causing avalanches. And and, in southeast Alaska, they had some more snowfall, and there's avalanche danger there. I think in Alaska, it's always going to be something. But it is the doses of things uh, and climate change that's escalating, that's making life more complicated. And how are Alaska's Native communities adapting here with these concerns over climate change and these changing conditions, which are are really altering the traditional lifestyle there? They are, and and it's somewhat unpredictable, but take um, Utkiavik Barrow on the North Slope. They had record warm temperatures uh, this winter, and so it postpones their ability to go out and hunt because they, they need things to be frozen to do that. And and that's playing out across the state. It's kind of interesting. Alaska's uh, Native Tribal Health Consortium has something called 
a LEO network, local environmental observers, and they post their observations online. And so you're seeing all kinds of changes across the state, strange birds, strange fish. And of course, you know, the ultimate sort of wake-up call for Alaskans came this September when they had the remnants of Typhoon Merbach uh, ravage a lot of the western Alaska coastline. Mm, yeah, we, we watched, we did a couple of shows on that whole issue as well, and just uh, really, really alarming, just some of these weather patterns that are impacting Alaska. And Rhonda, also, um, politically, there was big news in Alaska with Mary Peltola's victory. In fact, that was maybe one of the biggest stories coming out of Alaska, impacting Native folks, as well as mainstream uh, voters. And what can we expect now? 2023, Mary Peltola in uh, a congressperson now elected to her first full term. Well, yeah, Mary Peltola is is kind of, I think, a story uh, of national significance. And maybe we won't fully realize it until we, we watch her in office. And you have to think about this. She's of Yupik heritage. She grew up in small villages in western Alaska uh, along the Kuskokwim River. And so just kind of picture this. She's the first Alaska Native to serve in Congress. And, of course, we do have Native Americans that have served in, in the House. But there's probably no member of Congress right now that knows what it's like to live a subsistence lifestyle, to have a diet mostly based on on wild foods, you know, things you gather from the land, moose, salmon, berries, and, you know, one that you can regularly spot wearing mukluks, you know, in, in the halls of mm. Congress, uh, <laughs> hand-sewn footwear made out of fur. So, you know, it, it, it's definitely, you know, just, just the visual of that uh, makes your eyes open. But you have to remember that she, she was a dark horse. Uh, initially, she was up against uh, former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, who's nationally known. You know, when she ran right. for vice president with uh, John McCain, and she was also endorsed by former President Trump. So, you know, she was the initial favorite to win. But Mary's campaign, and I don't think you see this even in Alaska happen. She just seemed to come out of nowhere, and her campaign caught fire. And you know, she has long had a reputation when she was a state lawmaker of working across the aisle. But, you know, she's a Democrat and she's going to have her work cut out for her because she's, you know, been filling out the remainder of the late Congressman Don Young's term as part of a, a Democratic majority. Now she's going to become part of, of the Republican majority. And just, you know, just a little footnote on, on Mary's journey. It's going to be interesting to see how she works across the aisles, because she always says that that's part of her native values of cooperation, collaboration. And, you know, she already does have strong ties with a Republican, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, who endorsed her, despite being a Republican. You know, And this is, I think, so unusual in our sort of backdrop of national partisan bitterness. And and then, you know, Peltola was also endorsed by Don Young's family. At AFN, at the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention, they gifted her with Don Young's bolo tie. And it's kind of got some beadwork with the state of Alaska on there. And uh, so that was a bolo tie that was worn by a Republican <laughs> now being worn by a Democrat. So it's going to be interesting to watch Mary to see how she goes forward. But I, I do want to mention that this is Alaska's first time using a new system of voting where voters rank their second and third choices. And then as it filters out, the lead candidate can pick up second choice votes. And this definitely did play a role in Mary Peltola's victory. And so many other states are, are now looking to Alaska with regard to ranked choice voting. And I think we'll probably see some big changes here in the years to come with uh, other states adopting uh, ranked choice voting as well. It was Rhonda McBride, journalist and KNBA news director, speaking with us from Anchorage, Alaska. And we've got a couple of minutes before we have to wrap up the show, but I want to bring Allison and Sean back in. And Allison, uh, quickly, if you could, just share any uh, big uh, stories or events that you're looking forward to in 2023. 
Well, thanks. Um, so I, I had the privilege of being able to work on a podcast called In Trust, which is uh, b- produced by Bloomberg, Me- Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. And the story was about um, Osage head rights and how um, Osage land came into possession of one ranching family um, in Osage County. And so that um, we produced the first eight episodes on my, the lead reporter, uh, Rachel Adams heard, who's just like done some excellent work, but we're going to have three more episodes in, um, in the spring. And so I'm looking forward to sharing those. Great. Thank you, Allison. And let's go back to Sean Griswold. Now, Sean, uh, 2023, what do you got your eye on? Oh, biggest thing is always education reform in New Mexico, especially how this pertains to tribal schools, tribal students, um, how New Mexico is going to spend an additional $200 million that's supposed to go to early childhood education for language programs. Let's see them actually do this because the intent is there, and we're getting to that point now where the money, the intent is all there. Now let's see how this actually applies to people on the ground in the classroom, and I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing how that, that happens this upcoming year. Well, Sean, thank you for those updates there from New Mexico. We have now reached the end of the hour. So let me thank all of our guests, not just Sean Griswold, but also Allison Herrera, Brandy Morin, and Rhonda McBride as well for helping us wrap up the year with insights and perspectives. That's 2022, just a few more days, and it's going to be a wrap. So I hope you folks have enjoyed 2022 as much as I have. I think the big highlight for me is becoming the host of Native America Calling. Join us tomorrow to test your knowledge on Native current events, pop culture, and politics. That's right. Tomorrow's show is a trivia test for you, our listeners. But don't worry. You won't be graded. We'll just ask questions and you call in with the answers. A chance to test your knowledge on issues and facts impacting Native America. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. What if someone said you owe money to the IRS and have to pay with a gift card? What if they ask for a gift card so you can avoid arrest, help a family member, or keep your social security benefits? No real business or government agency will ever tell you to pay with a gift card. Anyone who does is a scammer. Gift cards are for gifts, not for paying someone. If anyone tells you to pay with a gift card, tell the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's consumer protection agency, at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.